0: Welcome to Pregnancy Help Podcast, I'm Christine Grimmett and uh, happy to introduce Danielle White. She's our legal counsel at Heartbeat International and we have Denise Harley from ADF with us today. And we are really celebrating, there's so much to celebrate but there's also so much work to do as uh, we heard the ruling on Dobbs on Friday and now we look forward to you know the work that the Pregnancy Help community continues to do and continues to grow. Um, but there's so many questions about what happened and what what does this decision mean with reversing row and what's next? So Danielle and Denise have some information for us. We're calling this Dobbs in plain English. So let me introduce Denise. I know we've had Danielle on quite a few podcasts related to Dobbs. Denise is a, a new, uh, new guest for us. Denise Harley is with Alliance Defending Freedom. She serves as the senior counsel where she is the director of the Center for Life. She also networks with pro-life allies, speaks publicly on behalf of ADF, and works to defend the First Amendment freedoms of pro-life healthcare professionals and pregnancy resource centers. Since joining ADF, Denise took the primary role in drafting the briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court in NIFLA versus Becerra, resulting in a free speech victory for California pro-life pregnancy centers. Denise earned bachelor's degrees summa cum laude in psychology and interdisciplinary social science from Florida State University, a master's degree in political science from Stanford University, and her law degree from Duke University School of Law. So, welcome to both of you. And, Danielle, um, let's start off. We're going to be talking about where were you when the decision landed? How did that make you feel? And, uh, you know, what was next for you in that moment?
1: Yeah. You know, before we even get into that, I just wanted to mention that because I think this is fun. Um, it's not in Denise's bio, but when um, I first met Denise, she was eight months pregnant sitting at that council table <laughs> uh, for for the NIFLA case. And that was really inspiring to me as a, another mom who's doing the lawyer thing and, and working. And, um, so yeah, I just don't mean to make you blush Denise, but that that was one of my first, um, that that was the first time I ever met Denise. And I was just like, oh, this is so cool that Denise is, you know, living out her calling to be a lawyer for the movement and also, um, you know, having babies and being a mom. And that was just really great. Yeah.
2: You're still more pregnant than I am most of the time, Danielle. (laughs) (laughs) One of us is definitely pregnant at all times.
1: (laughs) We've got it covered. (laughs) So yeah, back to your question, um, Christine, actually, uh, my family and I were camping when the news came down, I took a gamble that the court was absolutely not going to release this opinion until it was done releasing all the other opinions. And I thought, Hey, we're going to get out of Dodge for a little bit and go camping before all of the, uh, excitement begins. So, uh, when the court added that extra Friday day to release opinions, um, that was a little alarming. I was thinking, Oh no, (laughs) it might happen while I'm in the woods. And indeed it did. But thankfully um, I had, I had internet access. So I was, um, I was outside the uh, jump pad with my kids and they were jumping around, jumping up and down. And I was also jumping up and down, (laughs) but for a different reason, (laughs) Denise, where were you? Uh, Well, I have to say where I
2: was when I heard the leak, because that was, I was about two weeks before my maternity leave was going to end. So I had a baby, I had a three month old, and so, obviously, I'm I'm the director of our center for life. So I I lead, head up all of our pro life litigation and have been on this legal team fighting this case all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um and and including the fact that we this was our uh, model bill, so we helped craft this legislation um, alongside Mississippi. So I'm ha- heavily invested on maternity leave and get my phone explodes into <laughs> infinite pieces. Um, at like 10 o'clock at night on a Monday. And I'm like, I think maternity leave is over. <laughs> <laughs> so then, um, I didn't read the decision cause I was, didn't want to count any chickens. And I was also very horrified by the ethical breach. So just on principle, I was like, we'll see what the actual decision is. And so then, yeah, last Friday morning, I was just sitting, um, sitting, staring at my computer, refreshing SCOTUS blog. And it was all caps, like Dobbs. We have Dobbs, Like they have these sort of commentators on the, on the blog and immediately just was actually like hyperventilating and crying. I had no idea that the emotion was going to hit me so hard, um, but I just bawled and bawled and bawled, like the happiest tears of just total disbelief of what
1: God had done. Yeah, it really was an incredible moment. And even with the leak um, and, and knowing what way it seemed like the court was heading, I was amazed how astonished I was by it. I, I It just, it still didn't feel real. In some ways, it still doesn't feel real that it actually happened even with the leaked document. So so I thought it might be helpful to um, just shed some clarity on what the court decided and by what vote, because you'll see, oh, it was a 6-3 opinion. Oh, it was a 5-4 opinion. And so I mm-hmm. thought it might be helpful to explain that and and why um, both are kind of true. Yeah. So the 6, is it was a 6-3 decision upholding Mississippi's law.
2: Um, that a state can protect life after 15 weeks. So that was the specific question that the court was asked to address was um, whether that exact law was constitutional. Um, The court tends to not want to decide broader or more general questions than what is actually in the case or controversy before the court. Um, And so every case Um, in the United States Supreme Court has what's called, I call it a QP, but it's a question presented. Sometimes it'll have two or three. And then the court will decide whether it's going to take that question presented and, and take the case. And then, uh, most of the time addresses just that question presented as a, as the holding of the case. Um, so it was a six, three vote that absolutely a 15 week protection is completely permissible and consistent with the constitution. Um, one of those votes Chief justice Roberts was, uh, concurring in the judgment, but, uh, had a separate view and was not ready to fully overturn Roe at this point. He basically, Um, His argument was that this viability line that we've been operating under isn't wasn't necessarily uh, a part of Roe. So even if now the court is saying, okay, viability isn't the determinant, that doesn't mean it's rejecting Roe. It just means that um, it's uh, reframing the standard of how an abortion law or a pro-life protection should be viewed. So a, a little bit technical, and it was very obvious from oral argument um, and just from sort of knowing that Chief justices jurisprudence that he was going to want very, very much to find a way to not completely overturn Roe um, because he likes to, in his view, I think he likes to keep sort of institutional stability. His institutionalism is like off the charts. And so he tends to think that the most minor um, movement in, in the case law is is generally the best. Um, but here we see that it really just was an untenable position and none of the other eight justices could even uh, could even b- bring themselves to sign on to his idea of trying to find a middle ground.
1: Yeah, that was really interesting. Um, and we maybe we'll get into uh, Robert's concurrence a little bit more to to kind of explore that. Um, but I think um, when we think about the majority opinion itself, for for listeners who might not have heard our previous podcasts explaining the Dobbs opinion and some of the issues that are involved, you might want to go back and take a listen to those where we explain stare decisis and we explain why that matters. Um, because what follows might not make a whole lot of sense without that foundation. But um, you know, one of the one of the key issues in this case was stare decisis, which means to stand by issues that have already been decided. And when you listen to the oral argument. And you read the briefs. It was pretty clear that stare decisis was the thrust of the other side's argument. I think I think it was kind of their their best best argument. Um, but this court uh, did not decide to stand by Roe and Casey. And, um, and Denise, maybe you could speak a little bit to what they decided as far as stare decisis and and why they don't have to adhere to Roe and Casey simply because previous courts have done so.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so stare decisis is an important um, concept. It's an important doctrine because um, we certainly wouldn't want courts to just flip-flop on what's legal and what's not legal just based on which judges happen to be wearing robes at the time. Um, It's a factor test. So there are several things that usually come into play. Um, But there's a heavy presumption that courts don't just overrule and depart from their prior decisions. The most important factor, though, is whether that prior decision was clearly erroneous. If it was egregiously wrong, that's a very heavy consideration in the fact that the case should be overturned. I mean, the general you know there are other there are other factors that are looked to pretty regularly. One is the workability, like whether that prior decision okay, even if it was maybe not perfectly correct, has it been easy to apply, easy to administer? Are a lot of people relying on it around the nation? So workability reliance here, of course, Roe and Casey were completely unworkable, and we saw courts constantly disagreeing about what was an undue burden on abortion, where's the viability line, um, striking down laws in one state and then, and then upholding that exact same law somewhere else with total confusion about um, what the Casey test was. And in terms of reliance interests as well, here, you know, the reliance interest asserted is that a woman is supposedly, um, relying on the availability of abortion to, uh, determine her, her sexual activity, essentially relying on that as a, as a fallback. Um, and that's, that's a very different reliance interest than like, you know, maybe people who engage entered into a contract with, you know, invested money and built out real estate or something like that, where it would be more unjust to just yank that away. This is, you know, the idea that abortion should essentially function as as birth control is really the way that the other side phrases that reliance interest. So all that to say, because because Roe was so completely wrong, um, none of those other factors could outweigh it. And and what the majority opinion basically says is when something is a very wrong interpretation of the constitution, this court needs to correct it as soon as possible, because the sooner the court corrects it, then the sooner the people have their rights back. And that's what happened here.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because uh, when the court is deciding issues um, of what the constitution says or what the constitution means, once the Supreme Court decides that, there's really, it's very, very difficult for the people to have a say in whether that decision is what they actually wanted. And so once the Supreme Court um, decided Roe, Short of the Supreme Court overturning row, it would take a constitutional amendment, right, to to ever correct that error. Um, and and so that is that was another reason why the court said, hey, if we're wrong on matters of interpreting the Constitution, that actually weighs more in favor of getting rid of the precedent um, than it would even on statutory interpretation, where the court is just interpreting a law that as you know the legislature writes. If the people say, well, wait a second, we we wrote that a law thinking that it meant something else, then they can simply redraft the law. But that's not the case when the court is interpreting the Constitution itself. It would require a constitutional amendment, which is an extraordinarily um, high bar to change the law. I thought that was a really important factor, just the fact that they're they're yeah. interpreting constitutional law. Absolutely.
2: That's right. And that, that kind of highlights the fact that this row was decided by seven men <laughs> uh, in 1973. I mean, this was a an a unbelievable power grab that these people who happened to be in in charge, said this is what they thought the Constitution should include. Um, and and that was taking it completely away from the democratic process and from the people. Um, and it was, you know, the only way to write that wrong is for the court to essentially relinquish power, which is a very unusual thing to see <laughs> the government doing. But the Supreme Court in this case was actually giving up its power to control
1: the abortion debate. Yeah, I think that's critical. And on the reliance factor, um... One of the things that Heartbeat uh, said in its brief to the court was that so much has changed in our culture and in our society and how we view pregnancy and how women can participate in the social and economic life of the nation, even while they're having children um, and, and through their motherhood. And one of the ways that we think it's critical that the nation has changed is the growth and um, the growth both in size and in scope of the pregnancy health movement. So, all of you that are listening to this podcast who are involved in pregnancy centers, who are doing the hard work day in and day out of making sure that women have the resources and the help that they need so that they can continue to pursue their education. They can continue to um, pursue their careers and have success in all of their other endeavors. And they don't need to choose between the life of their child and their hopes and their dreams. So it was really, really amazing to be able to tell the court of the movement and of three of the women who received help in that movement. And then we did see the court um, kind of nod to that in a in a small section where um, Justice Alito talks about some of the arguments on the um, pro-life side for why women need not rely on abortion. So that was cool to see that. Absolutely. So one of the things that um, came up, and I have found it very interesting as I watched kind of the, some of the commentary unfold on this case, First of all, I find it interesting that the pro abortion side seems to need to hitch its cart to a different issue entirely in order to gain the outrage that it thinks it needs. Um well, <laughs> so, they did not you know, an oral argument, they couldn't even stand up there and say it was Roe was correctly
2: decided. They they never took that position. They just right.
1: relying on it. So Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. Well, yeah. And so now all of a sudden Roe has been overturned, but we're having all these conversations about other things like um, same-sex marriage or contraception. Um, and that might be really confusing to people who haven't read the opinion yet or don't understand, like, wait, why are we talking about um, contraception all of a sudden? This wasn't about contraception. So maybe you could kind of back up a little bit, Denise, and explain that um, that grounding in the substantive due process question and uh, maybe Justice Thomas's concurrence inflaming that a little bit and <laughs> either intentionally or unintentionally, which I think is up to debate. <laughs>
2: He might have been mad about the uh,
1: harassment and attacks on him and his colleagues. Yeah, you know, I I had that thought as I was reading it. And it's interesting because the majority opinion only refers to the concurrence as if there was only one of them. (laughs) But there were actually three concurrences. And so I wondered if, like, maybe those two concurrences came on a little later after he had already responded to um, Justice Roberts' concurrence. And I I kind of wondered if Thomas was like, yep, here comes my concurrence because I'm not happy with how this is all going
2: down. Yeah, one thing I love about him is he always is, um, he always says exactly what he thinks. and you 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 get, you know, what you see is what you get. And he's very consistent. And if he disagrees with something, he will keep saying it over and over and over again in every case for years um, until the court, a lot of times he persuades his colleagues. Yeah. on this one in particular, uh, he was out there on his own. (laughs) Um, so let me, let me just back up to what happens when a right is not mentioned in the constitution. Okay. So, um, the constitution is very much a document that's based on, uh, it's text, but because it couldn't contemplate every contingency in the universe, it's supposed to be a guiding document. Um, it doesn't, Say every single word, right? So, I mean, we have the Congress shall make no law infringing the right to free speech, um, but we don't have to have every itemized example of what that might mean. Um, So there are certain rights that have been recognized over time that are not um, written per se into the constitution, but all of those unenumerated rights is what they're called, have some sort of history, tradition, um were well understood at the founding of our nation were well known to the framers of the constitution um and so there's always that you know analysis of if it's unenumerated is there is it deeply rooted in the, the nation's traditions and history um abortion very much is not um abortion was was completely unlawful everywhere um for the first 150 years or so right so even by the end of the 1950s um all but four states prohibited abortion at most or all stages of pregnancy i think maybe all stages of pregnancy i think there are four states that had like a slight exception and even by the time of Roe, it was it was an overwhelming supermajority of states outlawed abortion it was it was never understood to be uh, some fundamental right that um to to destroy human life and so what the court said was, you know, that analysis that kind of ends the analysis right there. Um, first of all, you basically admit it. Ro, the row court basically admitted we have no idea where this right is. It's emanating from the penumbras, and it could be the <laughs> the fifth plus the fourth and the ninth and the privileges and immunities, or maybe somewhere in the fourteenth. Casey never really identified it either, and um, so it's it's for sure not there. Uh, when you talk about some of the other rights like contraception or same sex marriage. Um, those are also unenumerated. Um, but then the question would be, you know, depending on the level of generality looked at, okay, are okay. Same-sex marriage, was there a, was there understood to be a right to marriage? Um, when, how long has that been permitted? Uh, what are the reliance interests in that? Has it been workable? So there'd be a totally different stare decisis analysis. Um, but the biggest distinction the court made, and this is kind of the bottom line, is that the taking of an innocent human life is unlike any other asserted rights that anyone could ever make right i mean that's just a, a fundamentally different thing and so it's just not a comparator to say well these other ideas are kind of newer so therefore you can take a human you know take away a human life that just doesn't work and that's kind of how alito shot it down
1: Yeah. And we've seen the the press kind of run with that and following Dobbs saying, oh, well, there's all of these other um, substantive due process rights that are now on the chopping block. And some of those rights are the right to contraception, the right of interracial couples to marry, um, the right to use contraception. And so now we're seeing discussions about all of those rights. Um, And I, I think it's, it was unfortunate to me to see the dissent's really just dismiss that critical distinction with kind of a hand wave. Like they don't they don't even really engage with the idea of why this is so critically different, this so-called right to an abortion, because it destroys the life of an innocent human being, or at least if you in at least a potential life, as as Rose says and as Casey mutates.
2: And I um, think that's because I think it's because they don't have an argument. They they right. know that Roe was wrong. They've known it all along. Their best argument was that well, precedent you can't depart from precedent, um, but they can't justify it, right. and um, and so the best they can do to get people upset is to start to do the scaremongering. Right. Um, but you know, ADF, we have a case next term in the Supreme Court that is about whether a creative professional. Can, be even, can even be allowed to speak her opposition to same-sex marriage. She's a website designer. State of Colorado is punishing her, um, criminalizing her for not uh, personally designing tailor-made wedding websites for same-sex couples. And we've taken that all the way to the Supreme Court. So there's it's not really on the table. The, the question is whether believers, Christians, can even speak their opposition publicly and live out their faith and, and work you know according to their beliefs that marriage is between one man and one woman we are nowhere even close to the overturning of same sex marriage
1: right right and I, similarly i think the contraception fears are are totally unfounded i would be stunned to see any legislature introduce um legislation that would outlaw contraceptives that would that would be very very surprising
2: that's right and every abortion prohibition um in, in place in every single state across the nation to regulating abortion is very clear, but it does not apply to contraception and that is not the same thing.
1: Right. Yeah, we'll also see some of the same um, arguments about m- managing miscarriages and, oh no, now it's going to be illegal to perform a DNC in the event of a miscarriage. Um, is, is IVF going to be outlawed? And yeah, just, treatment. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things the dissent talks about at length I thought, or at least maybe it just felt long when I was reading it, was um, that when when the Fourteenth Amendment was ratified, which is kind of the period of time that we're looking at to see if this right is deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, when the Fourteenth Amendment was ratified, oh, women didn't even have the right to vote then. So how could we? Are we going to go back to a, a time when women aren't even considered full full participants in society? Um, what would you say to that, Denise? Yeah, well, the whole purpose, or one major purpose, of the Fourteenth Amendment
2: was to ensure uh, that women were treated equally, and we have the Nineteenth Amendment now, which is part of the the Constitution's text, which women say, which says, of course, women do have the right to vote. So that has been corrected through a constitutional amendment. Um, it did not. It did does not mean that you know everything that happened in the year eighteen sixty eight was wrong. Um, But this is another interesting argument you're hearing from the other side, this outrage about Roe being gone. It's like it just went back to the states. And guess what? Women can vote uh, in all of their states and they can elect whichever lawmakers are going to put forth whatever kind of policy they want. And by the way, if you look at polling, women are more pro-life than men. So uh, if it's so popular, if abortion is so popular, you shouldn't be worried because all the states are going to
1: protect it. Yes. (laughs) For the democratic process. Right. And you see these women that are marching in these demonstrations in New York and in California and in Washington. And it's just aggravating because those states are going to have some of the most permissive abortion laws or the most permissive abortion laws in the entire nation. And so you kind of wonder, like, what, what exactly are you protesting here? It seems to me that the state of the law in your state is what you think it should be. And then are you, are you protesting that other women have voted a different way in the other? You know, what would be a great use of this energy
2: is to go volunteer and support a pregnancy resource center. Like, I mean, all your time, these people are saying, Hey, if you need abortion, I will drive you there. I will do whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like, how about you help a mom who actually wants to welcome her child
1: into the world and just needs a little bit of support. That'd be a good use of your time. Right, right. And we know that women are are very ambivalent about the abortion decision. You know, one of the things that we saw come out after the Texas law outlawed abortions after a a heartbeat um, back in December was we had centers um, experiencing women saying things like, thank goodness now I don't have to decide. Thank goodness now I don't have to deal with that pressure from my boyfriend, from my mom, from my employer to end Mm -hmm. this pregnancy because now I have the law that says I can't. And it's just really interesting because I think that women are so ambivalent about this decision to begin with. Um, Mm -hmm. We see that in our abortion pill reversal clients, women, 75% of the women who contact the abortion pill reversal line are only 24 hours after taking, um, they contact within the, the first 24 hours after taking mifepristone. And so even, even right away, uh, that ambivalence is so evident because she must have been at least somewhat unsure about the, that decision in the first place to then turn around and now desperately want to reverse that decision. Um, and so to suggest that abortion is this ultimate good that women have just been um, fighting for is, is really not true. Um, and I think your point is very well taken, Denise, about about the the pregnancy help movement and the resources that are available to women so that they don't feel like they have to choose abortion. So of course, that's what we've seen, right? The other side has definitely been supporting pregnancy centers and (laughs) helping with, no, no, the reaction to this has been to set centers on fire or vandalize them or threaten them. And so it's very discouraging um, to see that, but not altogether surprising.
2: Yeah, Planned Parenthood is not giving out free diapers and formula
1: to my knowledge. No, no. no. And isn't it telling that nine out of 10 pregnant women who walk into a Planned Parenthood will receive an abortion there. Mm. And then on the flip side, our statistics show that nine out of 10 women who walk into a pregnancy help organization will choose life for their child. And is it possible that that's because she just needed the support? She needed someone to walk beside her and say, you can do this and I'll help you. Mm -hmm. Um, and how much more empowering is that than yep, we'll just get rid of your child and never see you again unless you need us to get rid of a subsequent one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've talked about the majority opinion a little bit. We've we'll talked about stare decisis. Um, we've talked a little bit about the dissent. Um, but what does what does this mean? The um Alito decision says that now rational basis will apply. Um right. could you talk a little bit about what that means?
2: Yes. So um in general, the states are Kind of in charge of protecting the health welfare and safety of their citizens so this is the case this is why states can regulate the medical profession and have all sorts of you know safety laws and health regulations um to make sure that their people are safe have law enforcement and so forth um abortion it has always just been this exception ever since ever since roe abortion is treated differently like this sacred fundamental right and states have been prohibited from you know, limiting abortion or regulating it. And, and you've probably even heard of these lawsuits where it'll be just a rule that like the clinics have properly, uh, you know, proper widths of hallways for gurneys in case of emergency or admitting privileges for an abortion doctor or sterilizing their instruments. And the abortion industry is suing over those health and safety laws. Um, well, Dobbs has cleared the air on that and corrected this. And now the standard is going to go back to that rational basis. So it won't be anything heightened like the underburdening and strict scrutiny. And, um, a state really has to prove that they have this sort of compelling interest to make sure that a woman even gets an ultrasound, uh, you know, to know how far along she is and, and perhaps see the, her baby's development. No, no, no. States now can do anything, um, that essentially is, is rationally related to, um, It has a strong presumption of validity is the way they phrase it. And it just has to be rationally related to the state's purpose. So if I can just quote one line from the um, majority decision, it says um, that now state interests include respect for and preservation of prenatal life at all stages of development, the protection of maternal health and safety, the elimination of particularly gruesome or barbaric medical procedures, the preservation of the integrity of the medical profession, the mitigation of fetal pain and the prevention of discrimination on the basis of race, sex, or disability. So any of those reasons, the Supreme Court has just said, is legitimate and a law that advances any of those, um, so not so long as it's not done in some irrational manner that I can't even think of what that would be, it's going to be permissible under a rational
1: basis standard. That's so exciting. I, I really appreciated that um that list of like, hey, all of these things are rational. Yeah. Um, I was like, yeah, we've, we've long thought that all of those things were rational, but thank you for (laughs) specifically spelling that out. Um, So, so does that mean then that, um, that that's kind of it? So everybody woke up on Saturday morning and all of those states with trigger laws, it's uh, their, their laws went into effect. And um, could you speak a little bit to the kind of what the Litigation landscape is going to look like following Dobbs.
2: Sure. So, so under that rational basis standard and the way the court laid it out, um, a total prohibition on abortion would be permissible, constitutionally permissible under the federal constitution. Um, so, there's a, there's a question asterisk, you know, what is the political will of of legislators and politicians in any particular state in terms of what they want to do? Um, but what we've seen is that almost every single state that did have a trigger law, there were 13 of them went ahead with that, uh, triggered it. Some of them are in effect. I think there's, well, it it changes by the hour, but I think last I checked, six of them were in effect. Um, And then there have been lawsuits filed on several of those by the other side. Now, what the other side is doing, because they have no federal constitutional leg to stand on, is instead they are suing and bringing state constitutional law um, claims saying, Okay, fine, but the, your state constitution contemplates a right to abortion, and the argument they've been making so far, in what I've seen, is basically that because the states have been tolerating abortion, um, then any like an, you know pro life laws that were on the books that haven't been able to be enforced because of Roe are have been repealed by implication, and saying, well, you're not using these old laws, so no one really thinks they're valid. They've essentially disintegrated and so you can't enforce them now um, and or your state right to privacy protects abortion. And so they are running strategically to the state judges in the particular counties in the particular states where they think they're going to find a favorable ear. Uh, And it's clear that they've spent the past several months, at least since the leak, uh, drafting all of these documents to have them ready to go to challenge good pro life laws.
1: Wow, I was not aware that they were arguing that the laws had basically disintegrated because they hadn't been used. That's,
2: <laughs> you know, they don't have a lot to go on, so um, that is one of their novel theories.
1: Okay, all right. So it it's we can't get the the people to agree with us, so we're going to now run to the state courts to try to bail us mm-hmm. out. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so how how long do you think, uh, Denise, before kind of the dust settles on all of this? So
2: I think it's going to be a very long time, and here's why. So these state court cases will sort of do what they do and peter out, and they're much more straightforward bread and butter. Okay, pro-life law is passed, um, it gets challenged, and the courts do with it, whatever. Um, I think most of those are going to end up in the right direction. You can't have much clearer guidance than you got in Dobbs for the state courts. Um, and of course, you know, you're going to have California, and New York permitting abortion throughout nine months of pregnancy for any reason. So you're not really even going to see it there. It's just going to be in the red and purple states. Um, but then we have a whole host of other questions, which I hope you don't ask me an answer because I haven't even had time to research them all. But there's a question <laughs> about what can states do to prevent, um, you know, mailing in of chemical abortion drugs uh, by mail? What can the U.S. government do? What can the federal government do in terms of um, limiting abortions in different ways, preventing um, people from taking a woman across state lines to get an abortion when that, you know, when that state, where the where the woman lives and where the unborn child will be a citizen uh, has outlawed abortion. Um, and and what all of those attempts are going to look like and what's going to be upheld. Um, you know, there's arguments about whether FDA preempts any attempt by a state. To restrict chemical abortions completely, um, just because you know, the federal law usually trumps state law. So when the federal, when there's a federal action on something, sometimes in certain circumstances, it's called preempting a state action to say, well, the federal government's already decided this, so the state can't come up with some different way to regulate it. I don't think that works here for reasons that are way too complicated for this pod. But um we and we have questions about tribal land. Can can federal lands, you know, can you go to the post office, I guess, and or, or the Yellowstone and, and have an abortion clinics so that I'm laughing, but it's like these, there are a lot of very creative ideas that the other side is going to try, um, because they don't have much left now. And so I can't even conceive of how long these questions are going to keep popping up and requiring a lot of thought.
1: Yeah. I think, um, <clears throat> I think that's something that's really important for our listeners to understand is just how, um, we're we're not at the very beginning, right? We've had a huge win. And so we don't want, we certainly are not um, uh, downplaying that or or suggesting that it wasn't a huge win. Dobbs was a fantastic win. And like Denise said, it gave, it basically left no question on where, where the federal uh, courts are going to land on this. Um, but there are still lots of legal questions left to answer, and there's still so much work to be done. So I think that's Really important for our listeners to, to know and to understand. I have see, seen some commentators kind of hand wringing, like, oh, is the does the pre- pro life movement understand what this really means? Oh, is the pro life movement ready for this? Mm-hmm. I think that the pro life movement is very ready for this. I've seen so much unity in the movement and so much excitement, um, even amongst the pregnancy help movement in particular, for what this means about the opportunity to really, really help women. Um, and so I don't think that. The, the movement sees its work as over. I think or the movement sees a, its work as beginning with a new and more hopeful page. Um, so, Yeah,
2: I agree. And I think, I'm hoping that we'll see states, you know, redirecting their funds towards um, pregnancy health movements and through, you know, private and public programs that support these sorts of efforts to support moms and to help welcome these babies into the communities. And, and through that, I think, you know, over time, as people get used to this decision, and they start to see communities flourishing, where life is protected, and life is supported, I think that's going to be really attractive to some of these people in the middle, they're like, "Eh, I don't really love abortion, but I think a woman should have a right to choose, or I don't think it should be banned. Um, I I could, I could see, we've been ready for this, we've been marching, we've been praying, you know, we've been expanding our services. And so I think that it's going to be a contagious thing when we show that this was always the best way.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that the law can kind of be a little bit of an instruction on what what's mm-hmm. right and wrong for people. And so I think um, I think it was necessary to change hearts and minds in order to change the law. And it's also the changing the law is necessary to change hearts and minds. Um, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask Denise was the the majority opinion references Brown versus Board of Education a number of times, which is uh, of course the case that ended segregation, right. and it talks about. Um, how, thank goodness, Brown versus Board of Education overruled Plessy v. Ferguson or else we would still be experiencing education uh, se- segregation <clears throat> Excuse me, in our education and in our society. And yeah. now, Brown versus Board of Education is very highly regard- regarded. And not many people in this society think we should have a segregated um, society. Do you think we'll arrive at a point as a nation where we'll look back at Dobbs in a similar light, where virtually nobody disagrees with this opinion. It's just seen as kind of obvious.
2: Absolutely. I do. And for a couple of reasons, well, so, and this is the reason I thought it was going to come down on the last day of the term is I was like, this is going to be such a historic decision that they're going to want to make sure every single possible letter is perfect. Um, But it was perfect. It's great. Um, So yeah, one reason is because the constitutional analysis is unassailable. I mean, all all the arguments in the dissent are just sort of policy reasons. I was like, oh, okay, so you wish that was the policy, but you're <laughs> not really giving a reason why that's the actual law. Um, two is because, like, like we've said, since the beginning of this nation and really since time immemorial, uh, the killing of the unborn is just understood to be a fundamental violation of human rights. And so when people were allowed to make these decisions before Roe took that ability away, uh, uh, all citizens across the nation, men and women, were in agreement, an overwhelming agreement that that abortion is uh, an atrocity and we did not want it in our communities. And so it was not permitted. And and if you look around the world, okay, 75% of nations either don't allow abortion at all or limit it to the first 12 weeks. So it is a human, an under, like a human instinct that the taking of an unborn child's life is is a wrong and a sad thing. And so for that reason, too, I think people are going to look back and be like, wow, I can't believe we said there was a federal mandate in our constitution that made us tolerate abortion up to the point of viability.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think that as we work to make um, abortion unwanted today and unthinkable for future generations, I'm really, really hopeful that that our country will get to a place where we'll turn around and look back and think, wow, thank goodness for Dobbs in the same way that we turn around and look back and think, thank goodness for Brown versus Board of Education. Um, well, I don't know if you had any closing thoughts to me. This has been so helpful to hear your thoughts about the case. And um, it's been fun to talk about it together. Obviously, our work together continues. Um, and I don't know if you had any closing thoughts. Yeah, you know, this is this isn't totally legal. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's not totally legally related, but
2: Um, I just feel such a strong urge that I want um, a lot of people don't know about the pregnancy help movement um, options, even in their own community. I think the stat is something like 75% that I read recently, 75 or 80% of people don't know that there's a pregnancy center in their community. And so I would just encourage all of you listening to, you know, connect with your churches, connect with whatever civic groups are in your towns and cities to people are wanting to help and people don't know where to start. And this is the most obvious thing is the pregnancy help movement. And so there are so many people that aren't connected to you. And I know you're busy and I know you're doing this all for, you know, you're offering everything you do for free. Um, But if you can help do whatever you can to get the word out, because there are so many people that are hungry to help right now. um, And they want to be there for these women and these babies. And they don't know that you are the best avenue and conduit for that in so many ways. And so I just, especially when, encourage you to engage with your local church um, and and whatever it takes to be. This is a, a really big opportunity, I guess I'd say. And it's not that you don't try to get the word out, but this is a really big opportunity when people are hungry to hear what you guys are doing and what you have
1: to say. Yeah, I think that's so beautiful because I think that the um, accusation has been that once uh, unborn life is protected, the pro-lifers will just uh, you know, give themselves a congratulatory high five and walk away. But in reality, we're seeing people all over the nation just rolling up their sleeves and wanting to help. So um, that's really encouraging. And I'm really excited for what that's going to look like in communities and how that's going to
0: revitalize our
1: country. Amen. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you, Denise. This has been great. Thanks. So fun. Hey, thank you both for your time and for clearing up some of the questions that we've had on the Dobbs case. I want to mention a couple of resources before I close out. One is PregnancyHelpNews.com. It's our sponsor for today's episode. It's a great way to stay updated on the pregnancy help movement. Uh, They've been covering Dobbs and uh, even other legal cases as they come up. But really, it's just a a great hub of information on pregnancy help work around the world. So that's PregnancyHelpNews.com. You can subscribe for a weekly report straight to your email of the most current articles. Uh, I also want to mention our Dobbs page. It's heartbeatinternational.org slash Dobbs. There are links on there to some of the previous episodes that were mentioned uh, and also a wealth of other resources for pregnancy centers, for supporters, just a a one-stop shop for all of the heartbeat resources on the Dobbs case. So with that, um, I hope you subscribe so you never miss a future episode of the Pregnancy Help Podcast, and I wish you all a great rest of your day.